message and then tonight in the video, we're going to be dealing with the topic of pain and suffering in the world. And the title of the message today is, My Pain is Understood. Now, some people have the misconception that if something bad happens to someone, that it's because of their sin. Normally, these are people that haven't had some real difficult or trying things happen to them, perhaps. And so, their life is going pretty good at that moment. And so, they feel like it must be because of their righteousness, you know. And so, anybody else who's having problems, they kind of look down their nose at them and say, Oh, well, you must have done something wrong. But I want, as we start into this topic today... I want to set out from the beginning that that is not true. Uh, for example, uh, the disciples, you'll remember the Bible story about the man who was born blind from his birth. It's in John chapter 9. And so as they come upon this blind man, and it was common knowledge that, that he had been born blind, the disciples asked the question. They asked Jesus, they said, Who, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. You see, they had that mentality that the reason he was blind, that misfortune, if I can say it that way, upon him, must be because of his sin or his parents' sin. But Jesus' response to that is quite interesting. They asked, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. But this man was born blind that the works of God might be shown in his life. So that incident there shows us that not all of the pain and the suffering and the problems that happen in this world are caused by sin. Now no doubt some of them are. Uh, the evils and the problems and, and certainly we see that there are consequences for sin. People make bad decisions and there are consequences that come with them. But the thing is, we don't know. We don't know whether it's judgment for sin or whether it is some other thing. And that's why the Bible tells us that we're not to judge. That's why we're not supposed to set ourselves up as judge and jury over people. But for those who would think that, you know, if you live right, good things happen. And if you live wrong, then bad things happen. It's not that simple. And that's a very immature way to look at the Christian life. In fact, the whole book of Job refutes the idea that bad things always happen because of a person's sin. His three friends that comforted him, I can put comfort in quotes too, they basically told Job that this must be happening to him because of some sin of his own, right? And they proceeded to give him all types of theological arguments as to why they were right. You know, God wouldn't do this to someone who was living right. But at the beginning of the book of Job, we find out God says that Job was more righteous than anybody else. So obviously he was more righteous than his three friends that were there accusing him, saying, you, this is happening to you because of your sin. Otherwise, perhaps God would have chosen one of them as the benchmark for someone unwavering following the Lord. So I want to say that up front. I want to make sure because a lot of people have that misconception, you know, and I, I want to make sure that, that you don't have that misconception today. 
That being said, let me ask you some questions. Have you ever gone through something that was extremely painful or difficult, and as you went through that, you felt like there was nobody else who understood what you were going through? Have you ever been through something like that? Something just so crushing, something just so painful that you feel completely isolated, like nobody understands what you're going through. Now, if you've had an experience like that, I want you to compare it with this. Have you ever gone through something difficult, but you had alongside of you somebody who had gone through something similar? Have you ever had that experience? Now, those of you that have had both, which one is easier? Well, no doubt, when you're going through something and there is someone there who you feel like understands you, someone who gets you, someone who understands the pain that you are going through, it makes all the difference. And I would go so far as to say this. Somebody understanding, I mean really understanding what you're going through. Not just saying they understand, but someone really understanding. That is one of the greatest gifts that someone can give to you. Would you agree with that? It's one of the, it's one of the most precious gifts that somebody can, can give to you. To have gone through some difficult thing and then be by your side there to comfort and to encourage you. It's one of the greatest gifts known to mankind. And if you've experienced it in the physical realm like that with another human being, I want you to understand today that this is what the cross gives to you and to me no matter what the situation in our life. You see, God has been through the pain and suffering and He knows us better than anyone else. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is what I want us to contemplate today. Jesus experienced pain on the cross, the scourging that He took before He went to the cross, the scourging, the abuse of, uh, by the Roman soldiers, the crown of thorns on His head, uh, being humiliated and beaten as He was uh, taken up to Calvary's hill. And then as the nails were placed into his hands and feet, all of that pain, all of that suffering, Jesus experienced pain like no one else. And that is why he can comfort like no one else. I want you to understand today, your pain is understood. Jesus understands your pain. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible declares, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That is what the suffering of Christ at the cross is all about. It's so that He can relate to you and to me and to our human condition. He suffered like no one else so that He can comfort you and me like no one else. There's a song written by Petra and it's entitled, He's Been In My Shoes. I want to read for you the second verse in chorus. 
The song says the union of God in a man is a mystery that I can't understand. But now with my suffering known, I'm reminded that I'm never alone. Who has been tried and been tempted this way? Jesus, who now hears me pray. And then the chorus says this, and I love this imagery. He's been in my shoes, been down this road before. He's been tested too. He's been through this door. He feels the pain and he heals the bruise. He's been in my shoes. He's been in my shoes. Understand, Jesus went through the pain and the suffering on the cross so that he could relate with us so that we could have a high priest that has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But you know, often the question that plagues people is this. Why? Why is there suffering in the world? If God is in control... Why is there pain and suffering in the world? If God is so great, if God is so good, why doesn't He stop the rapist? Why doesn't He stop the murderer? Why doesn't He stop the wars? Why doesn't He stop it? If He's really God and He's really in control. I want to explore that question today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. And Father, I know that even in a gathering of this size, Father, there are people here who are probably even now enduring pain, enduring heartache, enduring suffering. And maybe we don't even know about it. Father, they may smile and say that they're doing well. But Father, I know enough about life to know that difficulties come. There are people here today wondering why. Why do these things happen? And Father, as weak and frail as I am, Father, I pray that today that you might speak through me and allow me to be a source of comfort to those that are hurting. And Father, I pray that we might understand the reason why you went through what you went through on the cross. And Father, that we would have the comfort, that we would know that there is someone who understands what we're going through. And Father, I pray that it would prompt us to take our cares, take our anxieties, and to cast them upon You, Father. I pray that You would work in this message today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? I want to show you a clip from Ravi Zacharias. And he was asked this exact question. And he responds to it so eloquently, I think it sets the stage for what we are going to talk about for the rest of this message. It's a five-minute video clip, and I want you to pay attention to what he says about pain and suffering. Uh, this question is for Ravi. Um, you mentioned the story of, of that... Uh, I think you said he was Jewish and he was shot by uh, at that I, I think it was a concentration camp or something like that and I'm gonna play the devil's advocate for a bit and pretend I'm Sam Harris no pun intended of course um, you stated 
that God was watching. God watched the gentleman pull the trigger. If God was watching, why didn't he make that trigger not work? Why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave? Uh, okay. I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, the Playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. But you can never have love without intrin intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're gonna be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive. The greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as the supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mideastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing. It's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. Man says, what do I know about these things? 
His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? Few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes, we don't know what lies ahead. Why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself by the, as the pilgrim's progress to come to the celestial city. It's important to understand if there is free will, then there are consequences. If, if man has an opportunity to choose good, then there has to be what happens when he doesn't choose good. There has to be the opposite, which is indeed evil. If man is to choose, then something other than good must exist. Otherwise, there's no choice. There's no free will. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. And I want to read three verses. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Romans 8, 28, well-known verse. It declares, And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them he also glorified. As we consider this today, I would submit to you this. You must trust God. You must trust God. No matter what happens in life, we ought to trust that God is working all things together for our good and for His glory. One author said this, he says, there are in every situation two factors. There is what happens, and there is how we take what happens. How we take what happens goes back to what kind of person we are, and what kind of belief we have about life as a whole. If the whole scheme of life is not a scheme at all, but chaos, if there is no thread of purpose running through it all, but only confusion, then our misfortunes are just part of a general mess. But if God is, and if life is His creation with meaning right in the middle of it, then we may hope to discover a pattern which will give coherence to it all and help to interpret any one event in the unfoldment. You must trust God. And I want to give you three reasons why we ought to trust God today. The first one is found in verse 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good 
to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. You know what? That is a promise from God. And that's why we can trust God. We can trust God and we can place that trust on this promise that all things are working together for good to them that love God. The believer need never faint in times of suffering and trial because we know that God is at work and that He has a perfect plan. Listen to this illustration. In the center of Main Street in Enterprise, Alabama, stands one of the strangest monuments in the world. It is a memorial to an insect. Now you might think, why in the world would a town want to put a statue, put a memorial to an insect? Well, here's the story behind it. Handsomely carved, handsomely carved in stone is the likeness of a boll weevil. Many believe that divine providence was involved in the circumstances that led to this unusual statue. In early plantation days, almost everyone in the community raised cotton. But as the years rolled on, a serious pestilence infested the area in the form of a small beetle that punctured the bowl of the plant, the boll weevil. As a result, it became almost impossible to bring a season's growth of cotton to maturity. George Washington Carver, maybe you've heard of him, along with several other scientists, became deeply concerned about the situation and began intensive studies to see if any substitute crop could be grown in that part of the country. The answer that he found was for them to raise peanuts. They could be planted and harvested with very little loss. So in time, all the cotton gins were forgotten in that region, and it became known as an outstanding peanut center of the world. Soon the farmers' profits far exceeded what they had earned from their best cotton yield. In the end, they realized that this destructive insect that seemed like such a tragedy when it first besieged them had actually triggered the research that brought them prosperity. The author points this out. He says, The Lord often allows trials to unsettle our lives for a blessed purpose. Perhaps we are trying to grow cotton when we should be raising peanuts. If so, he says, the delays and disappointments we experience are just gracious, bold weevils sent to redirect us so that we will plant the crop of God's choosing. And there you have a, an illustration of how God can use something that seems destructive and tragic. He used that in that town's uh, life to bring about good. Now, a biblical illustration that would echo that would be Joseph, the, the, uh, the life of Joseph, how he uh, was sold as a slave and ended up in Egypt and became second in command of Egypt. So think about Joseph, right? He's sold into slavery by his brothers. That seems pretty bad, doesn't it? Yeah. Then he's falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, right? He didn't do the deed, but he's falsely accused of it. Now he's thrown into prison. That's pretty bad, right? He interprets a dream for the butler while he's in prison, so he does this nice thing, and then the, the butler is restored to his position with Pharaoh, and the last thing Joseph asks him before he leaves is, hey, will you just remember me? 
and mention me to Pharaoh when you get there? And when the butler gets there, does he think of Joseph? No. He forgets about Joseph. And so there Joseph is forgotten once again. But then things start going right. Finally, the butler remembers, interprets, and then Joseph is brought to interpret Pharaoh's dream at just the right time, right? And then he becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And here is what Joseph said about it after he had come through all the difficulty and got to see the big picture, right? His father had died. You remember that uh, his brothers come to Egypt looking for food, and through a series of events, he finally reveals himself to them, and then all of, of Jacob's sons end up coming and living in Egypt, right? Well, finally, Jacob dies, and the brothers, they go to Joseph, and they fall down their life, and they, they know that the reason why he hasn't killed them is just because their father was still alive. And so they go, we're your servants, please don't kill us, don't do anything bad to us, you know what I mean? And Joseph is grieved because he doesn't have any ill intention toward them about this. And this is what he says about the whole thing that went on. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to them, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. When they were afraid that he was going to take some type of retribution, take some type of vengeance upon them, Joseph said, am I in the place of God? That's what he actually said to them uh, there in Genesis chapter 50. But he said, God used all of this to save much people alive. We have to rest on the promise of God that all things work together for good to them that love God. Next, I want you to consider this, not just because of the promise, but notice what the purpose is of all these things that we are going through. In verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, let me assure you of this. The evil that takes place in your life, that is not God's desire. He, he did not want that to happen. But as we've already established, in order for man to have free will, there has to be the consequence. There has to be the other side of it. If he has something to choose, there has to be evil and good. But understand this. God is going to use everything that happens to us to mold us into the image of His Son. To make us more like Jesus Christ. He is such a great God. He is such an awesome God. That he can take even the evils of this world. And turn them around. And use them for his glory. The purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of God. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says ultimately he will make us like Jesus Christ. Best of all, God's plan is going to succeed. It started in eternity past when He chose us in Christ. He predetermined that one day we would be like His Son. Predestination applies only to save people, He says. Nowhere are we ta taught that God predestines people to be eternally condemned. If they are condemned, it is because of their refusal to trust Christ. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, God is going to make you like His Son, Jesus Christ, and He will succeed at that. That's why we can rest that His purpose 
that is being worked out through the, the things that happen in our life is to make us like His Son, Jesus Christ. I love this illustration. Some of you may be familiar with some of American history. The Alamo in San Antonio, Antonio Texas was a, a pivotal point in the, the history of Texas. And about 187 men uh, kind of holed up in that fort uh, to, to go against the, the Mexican army. And every one of them that stood there, they didn't have enough people to stand against the army, and every one of them died. But it became a rallying cry for Texas and was ultimately what led to their independence. But on the Alamo, on a wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Antonio Texas, there is a portrait with the following inscription. Think about this. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. So you understand, they didn't have a, a picture of the man who died there for freedom. But he had a um, nephew who looked very much like his uncle. And so they took that picture and put that there. And here's what it says under the picture. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. Isn't that an amazing story? There's no picture of him, but since this nephew bore such a close resemblance, they put it there that people might know what that man looked like. And you know, in the same way, there's no portrait of Jesus Christ that exists today. But the likeness of, his, of him, God is creating that in us so that when people look at you and me, they can see something of the person who died for their freedom. The purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, consider the process. Verse 30 says, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. Now, I want you to notice something about this. You notice all the verbs in this verse? They're all past tense. You notice that? Whom He did predestinate, then He also called in the past. And whom He called, then He also justified in the past. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. It's already happened. It's already been done, right? And that's why the remainder of Romans chapter 8 basically explains this to us. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, all this has already taken place in their life. They've been called, they've been predestinated, they've been justified, and they've been glorified. In God's mind, it's already a done deal. And Paul goes on to say, understanding that, why does it matter what we go through in life? Because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. You see, so once we understand everything that we are in Christ and that it's ours forever, right here, right now, when we accept that gift of salvation, once we're His child, boom, it's a done deal. And Paul says, knowing that, why does the rest of it matter? Knowing that, we can get through whatever pain, whatever suffering, 
whatever difficulty there is in this life because we know that we're going to be with Him for eternity in heaven. Think about the process. It is a done deal. Have you ever seen the end of a movie and then went back and watched the beginning? Well, if the hero in the movie, if you see the end and you know the hero lives in the end, right? Well, then when you go back and watch the beginning of the movie, you're not there biting your nails when he's getting beat up or when something bad is. You're like, oh, gosh, it's good. You know, are they going to kill off my favorite guy in the movie? You know how they do that sometimes in the movies. If you've already seen the end, then you don't have to worry about that. You know, hey, he's going to make it, right? And you know what? Here, God has let us see the end, right? If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus has paid your sin debt. You are on your way to heaven. Nothing can take that away. That ought to change the way that we look at the things that take place in our life. Are there evils? Are there, is there going to be pain? Is there going to be suffering? Yeah, and it, it may be very bad. None of us knows what's going to happen, to, happen tomorrow. But we know the end. We know that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we can spend eternity with God forever in heaven. And that ought to change the way that we look at our life. One last illustration today. And we'll be done. I've used this illustration before, but it's one of my favorites. The story is told of a king who had a close friend with, him, with whom he grew up. Now, this friend, he had a habit of looking at every situation that ever occurred as positive in his life. And he'd always say, this is good. This is good. You may have some friends like that. I mean, no, whatever's going on, they're happy, they're, everything's positive. Yay! You know what I mean? This is good. That's how this king's friend was. Well, one day the king and his friend were on a hunting expedition. Now the friend, he would load and prepare the guns for the king. So he would load the gun and he'd give it to the king, right? So in preparing one of the guns, the friend had apparently done something wrong. And after the, the king took the gun from his friend, when he fired it, it blew the king's thumb off. Now, examining the situation, the friend remarked in his usual way, This is good! To which the king replied, Oh, no, it's not. And he sent his friend to jail. Well, about a year later, the king was hunting in a dangerous area. Cannibals captured the king, and they took him to their village. They tied his hands, and they stacked some wood up. They set up a stake, and they bound the king to it. As they approached to set fire to the wood, they noticed something they noticed that the king was missing a thumb. Now this tribe was very superstitious and they never ate anyone unless they were whole. So after untying the king, they sent him on his way. As he returned home, the king was reminded of the event that had taken his thumb in the first place and he felt remorse for his treatment of his friend. So he immediately went to the jail to speak with his friend. And he said, you know what? You were right. It was good that my thumb was blown off. And he proceeded to tell the friend all that had just happened. And he said, I'm so sorry for sending you to jail for so long. It was bad for me to do this. The friend said, no, this is good. The king said, what do you mean? How could it be good that I sent you to jail for a year? He said, if I had not been in jail, I would have been with you. He had his thumb. The cannibals would have been eating him, right? No, it's good. It's good you sent me to jail. 
The author comments, situations may not always seem pleasant while we're in them, but the promise of God is clear. If we love Him and live our lives according to His precepts, even that which seems to be bleak and hopeless will be turned by God for His glory and our benefit. Hold on. God is faithful.